This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. Today, I have a couple with me that's going to share some really interesting information. And believe it or not, the information is going to be tied to Whitney Houston. You'll, you'll see in just a few minutes how that all works out. They are Judith and Jim, is what I like to call them. That's easier. But their full names are Judith Shervin and Jim Schnakowski. And Judith and Jim, it's awesome to have me with have you with me today. And I'm going to let you all kind of tell tell the audience a little bit. I tell you what, let's do this since I got two people. Judith, how about you tell us a little bit about Jim? And Jim, you tell us a little bit about Judith. Cool. <laughs> well, we have been together for 27 years, married 26, and uh, like myself, Jim is a former professional actor and uh, did a lot of stage work and a lot of television shows, including Rockford Files and Quincy and St. Elsewhere. And uh, together, we have grown our business as uh, psychotherapists and now executive coaches and writers. Both of us have PhDs in psychology. Jim's has an emphasis of philosophy as well. And uh, currently, we are uh, on retainer with LinkedIn, have a three-quarter time contract with them, and we coach uh, executives in other companies as well. And now I'm curious to see what Jim says, since I've sort of given the big overview. Judith is a writer, as she said, and so am I, and we've written eight books, and we have them on the market, and they're all at Amazon, but what I want to say about Judith is her style is very different from mine. I was trained in philosophy and psychology, and academic psychology, and so I write very carefully. I really can't get out a sentence without the sentence before it, my feeling really good about what the sentence before it was and is written so that the sentences build on one another. Judith is very, very different. She has a kind of light, breezy, uh, we joke about it as being a Cosmo magazine style, Cosmopolitan magazine style. And it's really, she's really very good at it. She can knock out, she can knock out a couple of thousand words before you turn around and have a cup of coffee. Whereas I am building very, very slowly. It took me a while to get used to the way she works, but I have loosened up and she's become tighter since we've been together in terms of the kind of writing we produce. She's a, she's a terrific dancer and she once, uh, she was an actor and she appeared on Star Trek in the first, the second season. It was called Wolf in the Fold. And, uh, she, in those days, there were no A and B teams in television, meaning that the A team are the stars and the B team are the stand-in so that if there was a long lighting uh, configuration that had to be uh, that had to be executed. 
she uh, the, the the B team would come in and will now comes in and stands for the A team while the A team returns only for the final shooting. But in those days, there was no B, A, B, and A and B teams. So Judith, with Bill Shatner, uh, had to leave the deck of the Enterprise and go through that uh, elevator, that shh, that elevator that opened by itself, turn around in the elevator and face out. And so there were like four different lighting domains that had to be covered, and it was a tricky, tricky shot. So as they did it over and over and over again... Um, Bill turned around and said to the director about Judith, she, he said, she's funny. And I can concur that she is, and she's, but her humor is on the goofy side. You would not know that by looking at her because she puts herself together like a cover girl model, but she really is goofy. <laughs> Goofy is not the word I would have thought about for Judith. You don't live with her. This is true. Well, it's true. I I don't come off so goofy in terms of uh, my public persona, but Jim's correct. I'm a bit goofy. Um, She is. And uh, the the book that we're going to refer to uh, today with you, Nikki, is uh, What Really Killed Whitney Houston. And that is the website, whatreallykilledwhitneyhouston.com. That's our sixth book. Um, and it's a short book, but it is a, an in-depth exploration of what actually was undermining Whitney Houston's ability to be the success that she attained to actually hold that identity and how that actually took her down. And Jim and I call that the fear of being fabulous. I like that. I remember the first time I heard that. That is so catchy. Well, yeah. the thing is, too, it, it's, we're, we're going to get very in-depth about this, but just to let people know, it, while it, it, it's, you're going to be fascinated to hear some of the things that were, were happening you know, with Whitney Houston, that, that this is stuff that didn't make the news. You know, TMZ didn't cover this part of it. But it's the sort of thing, too, that it's gonna, it, it can impact anybody. You don't have to be a celebrity to have this situation. Everybody can have this fear of being fabulous. Obviously, to different degrees, you know. But it's, it's going to be interesting information I think you all are really going to enjoy. So what, what led you guys to decide to write a book about Whitney Houston? Well, originally... When Jim and I met on a blind date, one of the things that captured our attention, and we spent about an hour talking about it, was that both of us had walked away from successful acting careers. It wasn't that we were the lead in a television series. We weren't successful at that level. But we were both working actors, getting paid, having handsome incomes, and we both walked away. And so on that first date, a blind date, we spent extensive time talking about what on earth caused both of us to walk away from something so successful and promising. And as we became a couple, one of the contracts we made with each other was we were going to get down to the depths of what had undermined our ability to go forward with our own success. And so the story of Whitney Houston it really was an, an opportunity to use her as an example of what Jim and I had identified and discovered uh, in our own lives. Interesting. Interesting. I see how that works. Um, so was this your your first major project together as a couple? No, 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 no. We've had uh, one, uh, two, three, four, four, about five books uh, on the market prior to this one. But this one, 
This one was really captivating because it has very much to do with the unconscious mind. As a matter of fact, not exclusively the unconscious mind, but very much to do with it because the, most people have heard the term the unconscious and a lot of people have some idea of what, of what it is and how it functions in the overall uh, composition of our minds. But the unconscious is often the driver of what we are doing and we don't know why we are doing what we are doing. And we work as executive coaches, not only for LinkedIn in Silicon Valley, but for companies internationally. And we'll very often ask uh, someone, what, what, do you know what you're doing or do you know why you did what you did? And they will say no, and these are very accomplished people. So that the unconscious plays a huge role in all of our, li all of our lives. Now, by default, Nikki, the unconscious is not available because it's unconscious. And the, the cliche, or the I shouldn't say that, the received wisdom is that it's unavailable by default. Well, it's not. However, initially, it does take the assistance of someone who's sitting outside of the way you have constructed your world to be able to see it in ways that you can't because you're inside of it. And so we sit outside the world and we are able to hear, see, and sense what people are doing, which makes us really unique executive coaches because we don't coach for business terms. There are plenty of coaches out there who do that and they do very well. We listen to the person because our task is to find out what's in their way internally and help them resolve it. And so Judith mentioned, we talked for an hour about why did we leave and we neither of us knew really why. We had good stories, but none of them really made any sense. And so we determined to figure this all out. And what really killed Whitney Houston is a product of that uh, of that uh, meditation that we both did. Okay. So it's the the sort of evaluation that that you're doing with with this work is something that your your basic person is probably not really going to be equipped and have the insight to figure out because they're going to be looking at more of the surface sort of things the person's doing and that sort of thing. Is that right? Correct in most instances, yes. And, and yet, when we ask people to look back into their earlier years, whether it's childhood, adolescence, even early adulthood, and see if they can see anything that uh, was going on in their lives back then, uh, typically family-related, not always, but more typical, uh, as it was with Whitney herself, people can generally speaking, I'm going to say generally because it's not 100% of the time, hook together behavior or beliefs that are going on now that are holding them back to something that was going on in their earlier lives. And I'll just give you an example of a client who had difficulty asserting her leadership in team meetings, in her, her leadership position, while she was quite good at it, when it came to being more overt in team meetings or standing out in uh, particular ways, she couldn't understand what was holding her back until we helped her see that Growing up, her grandparents particularly had uh, often said to her, you stop sassing. We don't want to hear from you. You just stop sassing like that. Hold your mouth. Stop sassing. Well, in her unconscious, 
was deeply embedded, this idea, even though she was not conscious of it as an adult, that if she were to speak up, she'd be sassing. And in her unconscious mind, the grandparents were there very ready in the unconscious to say, stop it, you're out of line. And you know, uh, Nikki, because we know you're a writer as well, you know that words have extreme power. When we hear words, and consciously we hear them, but they are making unconscious associations. The unconscious mind is adaptive, but it's adapting below the surface of our awareness, even when we are adults. So that these words, the association between words and behaviors uh, becomes a very deep association. And then what happens is that that, that association gets interpreted. It gets... it, it uh, it, it, the word I'm thinking of is it ramifies, but I can't think of another word. It sort of it, it evolves so that the association isn't a one, direct one-on-one association, but it can associate to a variety of things. So the idea of sassing is bad. The idea and then the relationship with this young woman was that sassing was speaking. When, it, when she spoke, she was bad. And now she gets to be an adult and she has to stand up in front of a group of people and the unconscious association is speak when a speaking is bad. Therefore, if I get up to speak, that's bad. It's all unconscious. Her conscious awareness is that when she gets up to speak, she's nervous and she has heart palpitations, etc. And that's how it plays out physically. Interesting. Okay. I can, I can see how that works. Yeah, good. It works in all kinds of cases. You know, all kinds of cases. Uh, I'll just throw out lines to you, like, people like us don't fill in the blank. Or, who do you think you are? Or, aren't you too big for your britches? Or, uh, that's not for you. That's not for us. We don't do that sort of thing. All kinds of ways. Or just hard out, you're stupid, or you're incompetent, or, you know, I've heard, we've heard children in our, in our therapeutic work, um, Talk about being told, I wish you were never born. I wish I never had you. Father and mother, it doesn't matter who it's coming from. Those kinds of those statements literally become rules that govern behavior and establish how they view the world. And it settles in the unconscious and then it's unavailable to consciousness. And then it just becomes a driver, not unlike the drivers you insert into your computer to make some of the programs run. And another common injunction in families is it's important to be modest and humble. Well, then in the workplace or out dating, then the person who has taken that in as a a powerful injunction that lives deeply in the unconscious, they can't promote themselves. They can't get out in the workplace and go after a, a greater career. And in the dating arena, they can't ask people to fix them up because that would be overt and not humble and not modest. Uh, and we have to really take seriously, I want to just give an example of Whitney Houston's parents who no doubt were well-intended given, you know, the reality they had been raised in, which we don't know anything about, but they, we can't at all assume they were being malicious. But if you look at the video online that was taken when Whitney won her first Grammy Award, and she's still young and gorgeous and vibrant, and they video the parents backstage and Father John um, is very uh, casually uh, smoking and saying, 
Well, you know, when it gets difficult out there, she's going to come running back. And Mother Sissy, even though Sissy had her own Grammy uh, doing backup singing, Sissy says something to the effect of, oh, I still remember her as my little girl in her pigtails. You know, she's always going to be my baby. Now, both of those parents... On the day that her da- their daughter is winning their uh, Grammy, is essentially saying, "I'm not letting go of this girl as a child. I'm going to keep her close to my breast and make sure she remembers that she belongs to us as a child." See, now, as, as a lot of people might respond and say, "Well, parents say that sort of stuff." Yes, they do. And if if it's a one-off, they say it once in a lifetime, fine. But if that's said over and over again, or if there's a feeling in the household or the atmosphere, like there was in Whitney's household, that she really did not have a life of her own, and that the people who were most responsible for her were holding her back, that becomes an unconscious behavior, so that this woman, who is essentially, she becomes like a, a princess of the entire globe, of the entire world, can not sustain it and she ends up back in a situation that's drug ridden that is depressed that is enraged and is is kind of ghetto like and she ends up there why would someone who have achieved that success i'll give you another example that is not uh, whitney but it's uh, this the idea of asking the question why is is as applies and it's apt bill clinton reaches the epitome of power in the world as the president of the United States, and he has a sexual, a stupid sexual dalliance in the Oval Office of the White House. Now, he's not a stupid man, presumably. What would cause him to do that? If he wanted to do it, why didn't they slink off somewhere or do it somewhere? But he didn't because he was captured. And when you understand what happened as he was growing up, sex was everywhere, including his mother and his grandmother and men in the house and men not in the house. There was all kinds of illicit sex going on such that it became sort of part of his unconscious, uh, his, uh, the construction of his unconscious mind such that he ends up in the White House where you think it would be obvious that you shouldn't do it. And he does it anyway. So in a real way, he was possessed. Yeah, that, that's about as you places you can get into something. No kidding. <laughs> exactly. The only other place would be yeah. in the, you know, well, in, in the on the altar in the Vatican, for God's sake. Well, you know. Hey, one thing too, I, I got a question for you with with the Whitney thing and her parents and the, the comment about the Grammys. I can see how if if it's said once or twice, that's one thing. If it's said repeatedly, that's another. I get that. But what about if it's in a moment that should be so big in your life? Because that's huge when you win your first Grammy. Well, you right. Know, yes. She only had one, you know. But you know, if, if you know, instead of being supportive and putting the spotlight on her, it was like they were putting the spotlight on themselves in her huge moment. Exactly that the, that the attention was drawn back to them instead of providing support for their daughter to go forward and grow her career on her own terms. And and you make a good point that clearly both of them needed the attention to be pulled back to them. That's sad. Okay. All right. I just, uh, that, that hit me, and I just wanted to make sure I wasn't misinterpreting that. No, no, no. Not at all. And this is common in a lot of families, garden variety families, where we have moms and dads who are 
because of how they were raised. And again, no fault of anybody. We're, we're, we live in a, a society where most people are underdeveloped um, and have been in lots of instances abused and mistreated growing up. And so it gets acted out again and again and again. And so there are plenty of parents on the planet who, while well-intended, are desperately in need of attention and desperately in need of the spotlight. And so unconsciously, they pass it along to their kids that, um, and at the extreme, of course, there are parents who are saying, you know, you need to stay home and take care of me. And then we end up with the the, uh, unmarried men and women who live with their parents their whole lives because the parents are so desperately in need. Well, and and kind of like parents that put their kids out there to, to accomplish various things, you know, whether it's sports or beauty pageants or whatever, and then the parents are like, that's my child, you know, to do the same sort of thing. Exactly. How many parents, now this is, Jim and I have worked together, you know, a combo of over 50 years combined um, doing all this work, and we have heard any, t- any number of times from adults who say, oh, yes, my parents were very proud of me to other people, but they never supported me to my face. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, what I found with my writing is, is it was, why don't you get a real job or why are you wasting right. your time? Right. But then, but then when their friends were impressed, then I got the support. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, what uh-huh. happened to me in this mix? It's good like, point. Okay, so, so your friends had to tell me, tell you it was cool. Okay, good. Good to know. <laughs> right, but, but, but initially they could not, for whatever reason, Get on, you know, get on the on the on stage with you and back you on your terms. Yeah. Well, it wasn't it wasn't the route they wanted me to take. So, you know. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, during that independent mind. <laughs> well, and see, and and this is I'm jumping I'm jumping a category, but still staying in the same arena, Nikki, that you're raising. In 1989, at the Soul Train Awards. When Whitney was announced as one of the nominees, the audience booed her. Why? Because she wasn't singing. She wasn't singing gospel or um, uh, soul music. She was singing white pop music, and the audience booed her. She was apparently devastated that her own people did not support her. I would think. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. people don't realize the power of their words. Like like Jim says, as authors, we get it. You know, we get what you can do with words, good or bad, what you can do. But but so many times people just say whatever pops into their head. They don't think about the words. You know, and it's just like some of the things you said, like, you know, with parents, I wish you'd never born, wish you weren't here, you know, that kind of thing. And people just don't just stop and think before they say words, especially to kids and other loved ones and people that just shouldn't do that kind of stuff to. You know, Nikki, the, one of the major points in the book is that people thought it was drugs and Bobby Brown that, bought, that brought down uh, Whitney. And that is, that's an attempt to make sure that she's innocent of the, of the events of her life. But the truth is, she was doing drugs before she met Bobby Brown, and when she met Bobby Brown, there's a, this is another piece of her that people don't know about. It is recorded on uh, YouTube, and you can find it. And Judith did all the research to find a lot of these uh, 
uh, quotes and, and stories about her that she really, really, really wanted to be associated and known as ghetto. She said so in a, in, in a television show. I don't remember which one it was, but it's on, it's on, uh, it's on YouTube video. And that was a desire deep inside of her where she felt like she belonged. Because you would think, why would a woman of her stature marry somebody like a Bobby Brown, who was a couple of years younger? He was a thug from Boston, the Boston streets. He'd already fathered a couple of children. Why would, why would she be attracted to that? But he would be a perfect example if what she wanted to do to at least part of the world, and it appear, apparently the world, but that part of the world she cared most about, if she wanted to, to sort of prove her ghetto credentials, he would be perfect. And yet, she had no real connection and no association to what she was doing, and there was nobody there who could help her. Forget about the fact that she sang white pop music instead of black soul music. She could have made that switch anytime she wanted to. That's not the part of help her that I'm referring to. What I'm referring to is that her life just kept swirling down, swirling down a drain that led to her, well, she died in the bathtub, that led to her uh, collapsing and falling apart and yet had achieved such heights that most people would never be able to dream of. So there's something more going on than just the surface. But if we say, ah, it was Bobby Brown and it was the drugs, then in a way we don't have to look deeper, more deeply, and not see a deeper aspect of reality that not only applies to her, but applies to us as well, just in a different scale. Well, but couldn't, couldn't that whole desire, and, and I'm not putting down soul train by any stress of the imagination with this, and I'm probably not going to word it right, but wouldn't that whole wanting to have that, uh, I guess, perspective of her life and wanting to have the more ghetto sort of thing, couldn't that be tied with the reaction she got at Soul Train and how badly that hurt and trying to lash out in some way to reconnect with where she thought she was supposed to be? Well, it, it could, Nikki, but as best we can tell, it has deeper roots in that Mother Sissy was the choir director at the largest black church in in the country, actually, which was in the Newark, New Jersey ghetto. And we we assume that those earlier roots are probably more powerful in the actual uh, beginning uh, elements of this. And it's certainly then by the Soul Train Award uh, injury to her feelings, and, and many other ways, um, there were certainly write-ups in some of the black magazines that put her down, um, that all of that had, a, had to have added up to a deep longing to belong back where her roots were. And yet, she was uh, African American, Native American, and Dutch, so had anybody been there to help her uh, own that she really was an international star, uh, that she belonged to a much broader um, audience, uh, a larger community, uh, an international community. She could have owned something even larger rather than just hearkening back to her her ghetto roots. Nikki, you just said, could that not have been the like a source of the issue? Mm-hmm. Think about this. Let's assume, let's hypothesize here for a moment. Uh, 
Let's assume that she was an internally solid, self-confident, and self-caring woman. And she goes on Soul Train, and she gets booed, and that really hurts. If she had been a solid woman, that would have hurt, but she could have survived it. The reason that she didn't was because it touched something in her that activated her going down and down and down, more progressively down. So when people say things like you just did, which is completely understandable, one might say it, but couldn't it have been that? Well, if, it had, if, she, had been, if she had been a solid, a self-confident woman prior to that, it might have hurt, but it wouldn't have destroyed her. What happened is that she had already something alive inside of her that was, she was unaware of that was touched and brought her down. So no, it could not have been just the soul train. There was a buildup to cause that to happen. Right. No, I, was, I was just thinking a contributing factor, you know, because that was her. Oh, contributing factor, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah, yeah. It's never it's never as easy as just one thing that made no. happen. <laughs> right, exactly. People tend to think, oh, if I could just find the one event that caused me to believe that, uh, you know, I'm I'm never going to meet a man who will want, who will love me and marry me, or I'll never be able to achieve the kind of success in my career that I aspire to because of one event. No, you're quite right, Nikki. It's never one event. It's it's some theme that that is threaded through the early years. And and let me just make a side note for everybody listening. The unconscious is taking in the atmosphere and the messages that we receive actually starting in the womb. The evidence is that babies in the womb, certainly by the last uh, three months, the, the final trimester, can hear can take in if mom and dad are screaming at each other or if mom and dad are, you know, being romantic and lovely. And they're already beginning to take into the unconscious, is the world a friendly and nice place? Am I wanted and loved or am I not? And it's not until a child's brain is close to fully developed around age seven or eight that the child can actually discriminate about, do I think things going on around here are good for me or not? Up until then, because when we're born, our brain is only 25% the weight of what it will be as an adult, and it is very primitive at birth. It's just absorbing the atmosphere. It's just absorbing how that baby is being treated as the nature of reality, unquestioned. So... That whole span of seven or eight years, all that experience is going into the unconscious as unquestioned reality. So we have to really respect the power of those first years to essentially impregnate the unconscious with how that person is going to believe the world is and then, you know, if it's negative, have to work their way out of it or go down with it. Interesting. So, why, why do you think? Because I mean, since since it's our unconscious, obviously it's not going to be you know at the, at the forefront of our consciousness about things. So, is there any other specific reason why it's so hard for us personally to see the things that are holding us back like that? Yes, we call Jim and I call it the love grip, and okay. what we mean by that is 
that when we are little, uh, we love our family. Even kids who, you know, growing up in terrifically abusive homes, because we don't know any different, we depend on our parents and our, our family for food, for bedding, for holding, for anything that happens, and we love that family. We give our hearts to that family. We don't know not to. So when we are older and it would be wise to pull our loyalty away from being abused or mistreated or unwanted or any of the negative messages that we get growing up, we are faced with an unconscious allegiance to where we came from. And lots of people will say, Oh, no, no, no. I couldn't possibly say anything critical about my parents. They did the best they could. Well, they did. But as long as you can't begin to have a critical eye and, and observe from the adult perspective what, what was supportive of me and what was not supportive of me, then you really cannot begin to assert a new identity as an adult. You're still stuck being loyal to where you came from. Interesting. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Good. Good. That's, that's really important because it's, it's a message that we hope everybody listening uh, really gets, not only for themselves, but certainly how they are raising their own children. Well, that's, that's the thing. Well, that's, that's like you get, a couple of weeks ago I did a show about um, the cycle of abuse and domestic violence and that kind of thing. And the thing is, is as long as you accept that as the norm and, and you never see that, that there is another way, I mean, you just you keep doing it, which actually that kind of works with what you were saying too. You know, Nikki, years ago in the 90s, we did a lot of work with domestic violence. And the recidivism rate, in other words, when people leave a, dom- a vi- domestic violent, domestically violent relationship, they, 85% of the time they go and find another one and get right back into it. Right. And you would think, why would somebody do that? Can't they see the problem? Can't they see the disadvantage? Can't they see the pain? And the answer is no, even if it's happening right in front of them in the very way, same way you just said, and that is that it becomes, it becomes part of your life so deeply that you don't, even take, you don't even have an impulse to look at it. And it would be like, try, you know, it would be like saying that uh, I'm looking at a tree outside my window just as we speak, and uh, I want that tree to become a flower. It can't. It's a tree. Well, we humans are fortunate that we can change, but when we are unaware, we are just as driven and determined and ruled by the unconscious as anybody else so that some woman or some man, for that matter, in a domestic violence relationship leaves, but that's the dance they know. So they go back and they find another one, which is precisely what Whitney did, just the situations were different. She had to go back to what she knew. Right. Well, that's one that I talk to clients, coaching clients about on, on a level is, is looking at the things that you're doing, the patterns in your life, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's right. you know, decisions with, with children, with uh, boyfriends, with whatever it is, you know. Are you, are you making the very same decisions? And if you are making the same decisions and it's not working out, you need to figure out what kind of decisions you're making that are wrong and change it, you know. Right. If you don't but, identify what you're doing that's causing the problem, there's, you know, you're not going to stop it. That you're absolutely right. The, the first step is to identify it. Uh, 
and then you have to unravel it. Identifying it, like for example, I, I support completely what you're saying, repetition, where you keep doing the same thing over and over again, but say to yourself, I don't want to do that anymore. You know you're in the, in the grip of something that's going on unconscious. You have to identify it and unravel it, and then you have to replace it with a different behavior. If you don't replace it, then eventually you'll just slide back into it because there's nothing else to replace it. Right. Very good. So how, how have people responded to the, the message in the book so far? Most people, when they read what really killed Whitney Houston, identify either for themselves or as parents with some aspect of, uh-oh, I really have to pay attention to that I have never questioned certain parts of my life before and I see how I'm being held back by beliefs that, as I say, have gone unquestioned. Some few people, uh, in terms of the reviews that are at uh, Amazon, where, where the book is, both in Kindle and uh, paperback, uh, are enraged, it appears, from the reviews they've given the book, that their heroine, Whitney Houston, is being revealed as less than a goddess. And uh, they seem very outraged that anyone would dare question how Whitney lived her life. But otherwise, we are getting tremendous praise for the book for revealing not just what was going on with Whitney that took her down, but the whole psychological element of the, the power of the unconscious. If you're not on top of it, how it can limit and take down someone's life, and in this case, the example we've used, of course, is Whitney Houston seems to me, and this, this would take a little bit more open mind and, and that kind of thing, but it seems to me like the, the more healthy way to look at it would be if somebody with the money and the resources that Whitney Houston had can have this problem, anybody can have this problem. Correct. You know, and, and so if we can learn from what happened to her, and it was, it was a, I mean, it was all over the papers and, and, and Internet and whatever, you know, the, I mean, it was, it was a very ugly fall. You know, but the thing is, if it can happen to her with, with I mean, the money and the people and, and all the stuff that she had, anybody can have this kind of problem. So look exactly. at it in your life. Exactly. She was the, the huge international star. She, at one point, is purported to have been worth $240 million. She had won more awards than any other female singer ever. She owned the world in a, in a way at that level and yet could not live it. Uh, there is an interview with her limousine driver who started driving her when she was young and uh, would drive her and Clive Davis, who really made her career, and said in the beginning she was lovely. And then toward the end, when she and Bobby Brown were in the back of the limousine, uh, you know, doing coke and even set the limousine on fire at one point. And they were doing coke in the presence of her daughter, who was at that time about eight. You know, the limousine driver just talks about how she just, instead of remaining the lovely, kind, gracious human being that she was in, in her early years, that in the stardom... Uh, it just really destroyed. Essentially, she could not 
own it. And in not being able to own it, it consumed her and took her down, and she became apparently quite a rude and, um, well, she, she essentially lost her personality to the drugs, and all of the ugliness that she lived with came forth, and he said he, he could not drive her any, any longer because it was just too, too horrible. So that's, um, you know, another element of the research that, was, that we were able to do to see how, how far she succumbed to essentially the self-hatred that took over when she could not really own her new identity. And the sad part was there was nobody there in the interventions, in the rehab, who understood what was really taking her down and, and available to help her. And that's also the tragedy of it all. Well, it's also, do you think if she had been just a, a regular Joe kind of person, you know, not, not a huge celebrity, do you think that it, it wouldn't have manifested itself as big as it did? Or, because, um, I mean, obviously she still would have had issues with some sort of things. There would have been some triggers in her life that would have been an issue. But Right, exactly. And as you say... She was on a big, dramatic, worldwide stage, and so the pressures on her were immense, far more immense than any of us ever experience. And so as a result, the immensity of the pressure, the spotlight, the fact that she had to keep herself in a particular way when she wanted to be another way, it was all really, really terrible. It was sort of like uh, historically when people were gay and they would be in the closet and had to live with that kind of pressure. On the one hand, they'd have to be acceptable in, in, in the community. On the other hand, they had to be who they are. It's the same kind of thing. Had she been what you call a regular gal, just a regular gal, she would have had similar issues, but they would not have come up necessarily as powerfully and she might have been able to live a life of having a child and raising a child and living in some home somewhere and never had to face them because they, they, the, the, her, her leave-taking, her betrayal of her roots would, by, by her success would never have been as obvious. So yes, she would have had them, but they would not near have been what they were because of who she became. Okay, that's what I was thinking. It was it was just such a, a difference. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. That's what I was trying to say. I just wasn't saying it as well as you did. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about this for a long time, kiddo. I was going to say, you, you, have been, you have been dwelling on this a little longer than I have. Yes, right. no, yes we have. <laughs> yes, we have. We've uh, really 27 years worth since our, since our blind date. And this phrase, the fear of being fabulous, most people, when we uh, say it, most people chuckle and, and, you know, laugh with embarrassment because most people recognize that they've got some element of the fear of being fabulous going on in their own lives. But, you know, Nikki, I want to rephrase that a bit, I think, to make it clearer. If, if, well, first of all, you know the stories of people who've hit the lotto and their lives have just gone to pot because of all that money that came in. But we use the phrase, the fear being fabulous or overcoming the fear being fabulous, because in most instances, we are far more than we allow ourselves to be in most cases. Right. However, when you have to become that, when you have to change to achieve whatever it is you are going to achieve, 
You have to betray who you've been and who you have known yourself to be and who everyone else has known yourself to be. Like, let's just say, for example, just to use an example, that you or Judith or I uh, were in, in some way thrust into the office of being the president of the United States. Not unprepared, we had some preparation for it, etc., but we're there by comparison to where we came from. There would be so much we would have to learn. There would be such a different way of having to be alive. You couldn't do behaviors you've done in the past. You couldn't associate with people you've associated with in the past. Then you want to still be at this pinnacle of achievement, so you have to leave all that behind. That feels like and is in, experienced as a betrayal. And we use that word really, really carefully. It's experienced as a betrayal. Now, the fear of being fabulous is in part the intuition, intuition that you know you're going to have to betray and leave behind where you've come from, where, who you are, how you've evolved yourself in order to get to where you want to go. And so there are two elements. When, I am, when one imagines the future in this, in this glorious state, uh, there's a fear because I don't know how to do all of that and I don't have the skills and the, and the attitudes to do that. That's one side of it. But those can be learned. The other side of it is I have to betray where I came from. And I don't just mean my family. I mean my life history. And that betrayal is often, Judith used the phrase earlier, the love grip. We use the term grip because the fear of that betrayal literally grips you and holds you in place. Okay. So what, what if you, I mean, because many people have a radical change between their childhood and where they That's end up true. in adulthood. That's true. So, so if it's a more gradual kind of situation and, and you're, you, your, your mind, your subconscious, everything can, can adjust at a reasonable pace kind of thing. Do you have less chance of such a drastic reaction to these? I think so. I think it is because you slowly build your way there. However, think about all of the entertainers. You think about that guy, uh, I don't remember his first name. His last name was Wiener in uh, running for Congress in upstate, and he did oh, yeah. all of those uh, pornographic pictures on the, on the web. You think of Bill Clinton. You think of Michael Jackson. You think of people, mostly, though, the entertainers, largely, because they generally work for a long time, and then suddenly they're there. It's like right. overnight. It's like hitting the lotto. And a lot of them don't know how to handle it, not because they're stupid and not because they can't learn, but what they cannot do quickly is become the person they need to be to stay where they have managed to uh, achieve. And so as a result, if there is a slow progression so that when they're struggling to make their way, let's just, I, Kurt Cobain is a name that comes to mind. He's struggling to make his way in the music, music world. And if he is at the same time growing his self so that he can sustain while he's there, there's a, and I'm going to just jump uh, to, into the business world. It's well known in the business world that if you have a business, say that gross is $200,000 a year, that is a particular kind of mindset. If that business grows to, say, $2.5 a, a year, 
that is in a completely different, not only mindset, but the structure of the business has to be different. If that goes to 200 million a year, just imagine, for example, the various systems technically you have, in, have to have in place to manage all of that. And if you don't grow in terms of your own personality and the, and the structure around you, that when you hit 200 million, you will fail because you're not ready and it's not, you're not prepared to do it. These are all similar analogies to the same thing. If you don't get, if you, first of all, if you're not aware, and secondly, if you don't build it, when you get there, it's not strong enough to sustain the, this is an, this is an irony. It's not strong enough to sustain the blow that you're going to receive that the success is going to deliver to you. Okay. All right. Makes sense. Okay. So, you know, for the listeners who have, have heard this and they're, they're kind of putting the pieces together and seeing what you're talking about and may go back and listen to the archive just so they can hear it all again, um, is, can they start to identify any of this sort of thing in their own life? Oh, can they? Yes. They, we would encourage them to begin to look at any repetitional patterns that interfere with the kind of success they're actually going after, whether it's in relationship, whether it's in their marriage, parenting, dating, business, weight loss. It doesn't matter what area it may be. We encourage uh, everyone to look at these uh, negative repetitional patterns that are holding them back and then see if they can look back to see where the injunction may be coming from, from the unconscious, that suggests you are not allowed to succeed in whatever arena it may be. Marriage, dating, business, it doesn't matter, you know, money, it doesn't matter where that may come from. And then begin to examine what does it mean to be loyal, what does it mean to be in allegiance to the roots of those holdbacks that are not allowing for more productive, expansive behavior and uh, belief in themselves. Because for most people, when they take the time and they really commit themselves to evaluating where they came from, what all was going on in those early years, they can find some of the roots of what they've been loyal to unconsciously and begin as long as they give themselves permission to, as Jim said, betray where they came from, to begin to come up with some new attitudes and beliefs about themselves. Okay. Is, is there a way to get to the point where you don't feel it's a betrayal to move away from where you came from? The, the betrayal is part and parcel of, the being, of being unaware of what you're doing. And that's where it feels like a betrayal. If you are aware of what you're doing, then it's a matter of redefining redefining your identity and just changing who you are. And that's a positive approach. But if you don't know that and you're just sort of busting your way through the barriers, that's when it feels like a betrayal. Okay. Okay. So you don't have to worry about the whole, you're, you're, you personally interpreting it as a betrayal Okay, I got you. All right. Yeah, and again, Nikki, it's all about being aware. If you're unaware that this stuff exists, then it's gonna, you're going to have to fight, and then it's going to feel like a betrayal. If you are aware that it exists, then it's a matter of like um, changing the con- – I, I, sorry for this abstract language, but it's like changing the configuration of your own, in, uh, your own inner life. It's like changing your mind, but in a very real way. 
On the other hand, uh, some people, I'm thinking of a client that I worked with uh, some years back, literally called her mother four times a day every day. There had to be, in her instance, a conscious and concrete betrayal of that allegiance to taking care of her mother at the expense of her own life. Um, there was a lot of money going out to, to give the, money, the mother more money at the expense of the, the person who was involved. Um, so there had to be a conscious betrayal of that very primitive allegiance. And it would be like saying, Mother, for example, and I'm just going to use something that uh, could have been done in her case if she was aware, where the mother says, you know, you're always going to be my baby. Well, mothers say that all the time about their children. But in this case, it had a significant impact. And if, for example, Whitney had said, Mother, you, I, you cannot say that about me anymore. I won't accept it. I'm an adult. I'm a successful adult. And what I am is your grown, successful child. That I will accept from you. And little by little, retrain both the mother and Whitney and the whole family as she shifts her identity. And that's, again, where that oftentimes brings uh, disruption in the family because they don't want to change. Not that they're bad people. They're just not accustomed to it, and they're used to what they think and feel. Right. Interesting. Well, it's never seemed healthy for an adult to look at their their grown child and say, "You'll always be my baby." Right. 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 <laughs> right. Exactly. Just, like I said, it just feels unhealthy. You know? Well, and, right. it, and it is because the the parent by saying that, in a sense, uh, and concretely, actually, are saying, "I refuse to accept that you've grown up and you have your own life and it's separate from mine. I'm going to insist that you belong to me." So does that mean I should not make a point of saying that my brother is my little brother? Well, eventually, yes, because, again, okay. think, about, think about it. You know, if you say he's my little brother, then he's not ever had a chance in your eyes. He's not viewed by you in your eyes as a grown man. Interesting. Or, or an equal. Usually done. Well, I usually do it humorously because, I mean, he's like 6'2". Uh huh. Yeah, but psychologically, that stuff means nothing. And Judith made a point too. He's not only not a grown man. He's not only not a grown man. He's never your equal. He's always your little brother. Interesting. Interesting. All right. That's interesting to know. Okay. See, see, interesting. The new things. I'm going to pay attention to see what people say about stuff now. Yeah, that'd be fun. Good. Yeah. And then the listeners can do that too. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. The, okay. one, of the, one, of the terms, one of the terms that Judith and I use as a principle in the work that we do with other people is to teach them that the simple phrase that other, the other person is not you. Now, that may sound obvious and simplistic. You know, you're female, the other person's male. You know, you're this tall, the other person's that tall, like you and your brother. You, you, like, you, know, you like this kind of food, and that person likes that kind of food. But the fact is, psychologically, we all of us get involved in our innocent and, and naive preoccupation with our own lives, and we don't take the effort to see the other person in their own terms, and so we do a lot of projecting on them. So, right, he is your little brother. He, but why? Well, he's been my little brother always. Why? Because there was a time when he was littler than me, blah, blah, blah. And we can make all those arguments. But the fact is, is that you haven't grown as he has grown to see him for who he is. So essentially, when you say he's my little brother, he's like a prop in your play instead of a, instead of a person in his own right. Interesting. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny because people come up, to me for, come up to me for years going, oh, you're Richard's daughter. I'm like, no, I'm me. Ah. <laughs> right, exactly. There's That's a, a perfect example. Okay. Right. Interesting. All right, see there? I was on the right track. I just didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gracious. All right. It's always always nice to have that validation. <laughs> yes, yes. You are right on the right track. Okay. So let's, let me see. Let's give out your website address. You've got uh, judithandjim.com, and then you've also got whatreallykillwhitneyhouston.com, and I believe you also have Overcoming the fear of being fabulous.com. At what really killed com, people will see that the book is available not just in Kindle and paperback through Amazon, but also we put it up as an ebook and an audio book. So uh, people can get the book at a very inexpensive price, and as I say, it's a short book. Um, we've not overwritten it. It gives you everything that you want to know about her life, but also related to your life. So we encourage everyone who's interested to use her life as a case study to learn from uh, in their own right at whatreallykilledwhitneyhouston.com. Awesome. Well, believe it or not, y'all, we are out of time. Well, well that's why I didn't. This has been a pleasure, Nikki. Well, I am very glad that y'all joined me today. And listeners, I hope you gleaned lots of information. And feel free to check the archive and listen again and catch the points you might have missed the first time. And I will see you next time on Ready for Love Radio. 